morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Matthew 28. chapter 28. We are going to be wrapping up our study of the gospel of Matthew this morning. Uh, this has been a about a year and a half that we have been walking through Matthew's gospel uh, and uh, through a little bit of planning and a whole lot of God's grace, uh, we managed to wrap this thing up on Easter Sunday. And so uh, I'm grateful that it panned out that way. Uh, so I want to thank the Lord for that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, we'll jump into our passage this morning. Father, we are grateful to you uh, for your constant oversight uh, of every aspect of our lives, your constant oversight of every aspect of this church. And Lord, I pray that everything that we do here today brings you honor and glory. As we remember the resurrection and all that it has done for us, uh, all that uh, Christ's blood and broken body has paid for us, and Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to all that you have for us in your word, and Lord, um, I pray the Holy Spirit would be here this morning and would help us to see areas of our life where uh, we may be needing to press into you more. Lord, help us to rejoice uh, in the beauty of the resurrection. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. So, first of all, happy Easter. <laughs> Let's try that one over, okay? I mean, happy Easter. Happy Easter. Right? Christ is not dead. He is alive. Right? So that should make us some of the most happy and rejoiceful people of all time. And so when we have the opportunity to say Happy Easter, um, we should be ecstatic about that, right? The fact that Jesus is alive, do you know what that means? That means that he actually was the Messiah, right? That means that there have been many important religious figures throughout all of history Right? Many different religions, many different people who have been honored and worshipped, but none of them have come back from the dead. Right? All of them who have been you know, venerated and lifted up, they die, they go in the ground, they stay in the ground. But there's something special about this one. Right? Jesus went into the ground and he was raised to life. When that means that his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God. If Jesus' sacrifice was not accepted, then that means that Jesus would still be in the grave. He would be like every single other person in the scriptures that had died before him. But Jesus was raised from the grave. The reason for that is because God the Father affirmed through the resurrection, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross for my sin and for your sin, he said it was an acceptable sacrifice. 
This means that the penalty for our sin has been paid. Anyone who will put their faith in the sacrifice of Christ, anyone who will repent of their sin and bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord will be saved. And it's all because of Jesus' resurrection. By repentance and faith, it is possible to be restored in our relationship with God the Father because the power of sin and death has been crushed by the sacrifice of Jesus. In his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered sin. Sin has no more power over God's people. And though we still struggle with sin because we have a sin nature, anybody here completely free of sin? No. We still struggle with sin, but we are no longer slaves to sin. The resurrection broke our bondage to that. And on top of breaking our bondage to sin, Jesus conquered death completely and totally. Death is one of the most horrible consequences of sin entering into our world. And Jesus' resurrection just nullified the impact that even death can have on the life of those who follow Christ. For the believer in Christ, death is not the end. It is just the doorway to, the, to uh, the, being in the presence of God for eternity. And on top of that, it's just a temporary position at this point anyway as we await our own bodily resurrection when Christ comes back and restores all of creation. We will also have a bodily resurrection just like Jesus. So I'll, I'll say it again. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest thing that happened in the history of the world. Matthew so, how much time would you give it if you were talking about the greatest thing that has ever happened? Well, Matthew gives you 10 verses. Right? Out of 28 chapters, Matthew talks about it for 10 verses. I mean, at this point, though, should we be surprised at this coming from Matthew? Throughout Matthew's gospel, he's been known for his brevity. Right? He likes to make the main point without going into a whole lot of detail. So I think it's probably fitting that he goes into the greatest news of all time very succinctly. The details he has focused on throughout the whole gospel has been the Old Testament prophecies that point to the coming Messiah. And then he makes an exerted effort to ensure that his Jewish readers constantly see the connection between those Old Testament prophecies and Jesus as the Messiah. So when Jesus does rise from the grave, we see Matthew's brevity is covered by, it's like Matthew is just saying, see, I told you. I told you he was the Messiah. Like the neon sign that I've been flashing over and over and over again about Jesus as the promised one, Jesus as the son of man that has been promised throughout all of the Old Testament, the re resurrection ensures that we understand that's the one. So Matthew's like, what, what else do I need to say? He's alive. What do I need to say about him? 
Like you can see him for yourself. It seems to be that Matthew thinks the evidence speaks for itself. Let's see if he's right. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. It says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead, and indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to his disciples, ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So what do you think? Do you think Matthew's I told you so sufficiently lands? Do you think it's enough? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they go off to view the tomb. And when they get there, they experience another violent earthquake. Remember, there was an earthquake that occurred when Jesus died. And at that moment, the temple's curtain was torn in two that separated God from man. And here again, we have another massive earthquake, and this one occurs because an angel of the Lord descends down from heaven as he approaches the tomb. And then when he gets there, he rolls back this sealed stone at the entrance, and he sits down on it. And what must this have looked like? Right? Matthew says that his appearance was like lightning. I mean, have you guys ever been close to lightning? Right? Once, when I was playing baseball, it was 11, 12-year-old league, there was a massive thunderstorm that rolled through. And we were all taking shelter underneath, like, the concession stand roof. And I have no idea where the lightning hit, but it was real close. Because when it hit, I could see nothing. And, I mean, it, it hit, and boom! I mean, there was none of that counting, 1,000, 2, 1,000. It was boom, boom, you know, it was right there. So the brilliance of this angel, as he is clothed in white, must have been astounding. I cannot fathom what he must have looked like. He's so astounding that the guards are so afraid of him that they become like dead men, Right? So I don't know if they're playing possum or if from fright they just pass out. But I love that, like, I love that line so much. They see this angel and then they just go over like dead men. See, in my sinfulness, I really, really, really want some of these men to be the people that beat up on Jesus. I really want them to be some of the people that were in that courtroom who struck him in the face and who plucked out his beard and who spit on him and who said, prophesy, Jesus, who hits you? 
prophesied, Jesus, who hits you? You've got all these big dudes who have all these armed guards around them, and they're attacking an innocent man without truly knowing who they're messing with. But here, they're realizing their mistake. I really want some of them to, like, they finally get it. They understand what they're dealing with. And we don't know exactly how many men that Pilate gave the religious leaders to guard the tomb, but we do know that however many men there were in that number, none of them want to tangle with the angel. See, we have other gospel accounts that say there, there, there were two angels, which is fine you know, to leave out that detail. It's no big deal. But either way, these guys didn't want either of them. They're like, I, I'm just going to pretend to be asleep. Or maybe they didn't pretend. Maybe they passed out from fear. They became like dead men. The ladies, though, they seem to be fine. They're still standing, right? They're afraid, obviously. The angel says, do not fear, right? If you're in the presence of an angel, you're seeing him in all of his glory, then yeah, that's a terrifying experience. The angel says, do not fear. You're looking for Jesus, but he's not in the tomb because he has risen just like he said he would. Over and over and over again, he said he's going to rise from the grave, and so he's not here. And they, he gives them a task. He says, go and tell the disciples what you've seen. Go and tell these guys that the tomb is empty and Jesus wants to see you in Galilee. And so as these ladies go to tell the disciples, with fear and great joy, Jesus meets them on the way. I mean, can you imagine that moment? Right? These ladies have been so faithful. These ladies are at the cross when none of the disciples are there. Right? So these ladies are there. They have followed Jesus through thick and thin. Right? They've got their hopes wrapped up in his ministry and his messiahship. And all of a sudden, everything comes crashing down because of the cross. And now, they go to see the tomb, and they're told by an angel that he's not there, that he is alive. And suddenly, there he is. There's the Lord. There's my God. There's the person that I have put all of my hope in, all of my trust in, all of my faith in. And then what is the most profound thing that Jesus says in that moment? Hi. <laughs> okay. Well, I've, I've missed you, Lord. Hello. Boy, Jesus had a way with words, didn't he? I mean, what do you say after you've been in the grave for three days and you show up to see people who have uh, who absolutely adore you? Hi. When they see him, they take hold of his feet and they worship him. They worship him. And one thing we should notice in here is that Matthew gives this little subtle nod to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Okay? This isn't a spirit in the presence of these women. Jesus has a body that they can touch. I mean, it's real subtle, 
But it says, when they can reach him, they grab his feet, and then they worship him. And so the resurrection is a bodily resurrection. And after they are done worshiping him, Jesus gives them the same message that the angel gave them at the tomb. Uh, but the message to the disciples is so sweet that when you have failed Jesus as much as I have, that, I mean, it just, it means so much to hear the words that he uses to speak about the disciples. He, he tells these ladies, go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. He didn't say, go tell those worthless, good-for-nothing disciples to go to Galilee. I have something I would like to discuss with them there. He didn't say, go tell all the cowards to man up and make their way to Galilee if they can manage it, if they're not too afraid to make the journey. Right? Maybe you ladies could lead the way. Right? He didn't say any of that. He said, tell my brothers to make their way to Galilee, and I will see them there. This should fill us all with joy. He knew that his disciples would abandon him. He knew that. He told them that. And he still calls them brothers. He still makes plans to be with them and meet with them even after their betrayal. Jesus is so aware of each and every single one of our failings. And yet he loves us. He, he still wants to meet with us. He still calls us. If we are brothers and sisters in Christ, he still calls us brother and sister, even in every failing that we have. Like sometimes when we screw up, we push away from God. We think that we need to finally you know, dust ourselves off. Or when we get cleaned up, then we'll come back to the Lord. Well, you didn't clean yourself off to come to the Lord the first time. What would make you think that you have to do it after the thousandth time that you failed? Just come back. Jesus is there with open arms waiting for his brothers in Galilee. And he's waiting for you. He's waiting for me every single time that we fail. This fills me with so much joy. But the passage isn't all joy. The religious leaders always seem to make room for sorrow. Let's look at verses 11 to 15. As they're on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the ears of the governor, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. Then they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. So apparently the guards got over their fit at the tomb. 
and they've come to share about the events that happened there with the religious leaders. And at this point, the religious leaders get together and they come up with a plan. They bribe the soldiers to lie and say that they were asleep. The disciples came in the night and stole the body of Jesus, promising that if this gets to Pilate's ears, that they will smooth everything over. All right, they'll take care of it. And there are just there are a couple of things in this that just absolutely make me shake my head. All right, let's start with the guards. So, how much money would it take for me to offer you to be completely inept at your job? Right, to be completely worthless at your job. How much money would I have to take so that I could tell everybody how terrible you are at doing what you do? Because that's what they have asked. Somehow, in this story, everyone is supposed to believe that all of these soldiers have fallen asleep as they are guarding the tomb. So every one of those soldiers is worthless at their job. Not one of them, apparently, woke up as a group of disciples, because it would have taken several more than one, because this is a big rock in front of this tomb, it's been sealed by the governor, all right? So not one of them came in as these, this group of men came in, rolled away this massive stone. Can you imagine how much noise that made, right? Rock on rock, rolling away. So it's going to make all this noise. So they do all that, but somehow that doesn't wake any of, the, any of these soldiers up. But yet, even though it doesn't wake any of them up, they knew that it was the disciples that came and stole the body. So we have two things. We have ninja disciples and clairvoyant soldiers. It's amazing. Right? How much money do I have to pay you to look that bad at your job? It must have been a sizable sum. Right? But let's be real. For the right amount of money, most of us don't care that much about our reputation, do we? Right? If I paid you enough money, you would let me make a fool out of you, probably. What? So, okay. I can make my peace with that. I can, I can get there logically. Right? For the right amount of money, for somebody that doesn't love Jesus, I can see where we can get there. What I can't fathom, though, is what the religious leaders are thinking. I just, I can't get there. So the guards come up and they tell them that an angel came down. The other gospels say it was two angels, which is fine. And they look like lightning. They say that this mess was so scary, we fainted. When we woke up, the tomb was empty. The religious leaders know that Jesus said he was going to rise from the grave. Right? He declared that. That's why they had Pilate put the guards there in the first place. They didn't believe that he was actually going to be resurrected, but, and they, but they didn't want the disciples to steal the body. But this wasn't the disciples. These were angels. These were angels. When Jesus said that he was going to come back from the grave, they didn't know how it was going to happen, but they just knew that Jesus said it was going to happen. Maybe the angels came to resuscitate him. They didn't know. And then they get this story about two angels showing up and the body is gone. 
right? So they've got one of two options here. Either the soldiers really are as bad at their job as they seem to be, and they got overpowered by a group of inept disciples, right? Peter pulls out his sword, aiming for a dude's head, and hacks off an ear, right? So he can't fight. Nobody else is going to be able to do any better. So either they were overpowered and the, and the disciples took the body, or these angels come and take the body, or Jesus is actually resurrected. Okay? So they hear this story, the body's gone, and they think, how are we going to cover this up? How are we going to make this go away? There's no thought of repentance. There's no thought, hey guys, maybe this guy really is the Messiah. Maybe he really did rise from the grave. Right? There's none of that. Nope. They think, hey, how can we make this not look like what it is? He said this was going to happen, and now we're in trouble because it happened. So how do we make this go away? I mean, come on, guys. What more do you need? Apparently just a little bit more. Apparently just a little bit more because they don't repent. They don't start worshiping Jesus. The guards take the money, and then they spread the lie that the disciples stole the body. Apparently they needed just a little bit more. And that lie was apparently spread throughout Israel. And after this, Matthew skips over some time, right? The next thing that you know, we're in Galilee. Um, if you read through the other Gospels, there are about 10 sightings of Jesus all around Galilee before verses 16 to 20 take place. All right, so you also have a little bit of, you know, Lucy, you've got some explaining to do um, when it comes to the religious leaders. And what, what you got Jesus traipsing around Galilee you got, I mean, how do you explain that? But they don't even, they don't even try. Matthew jumps straight to Galilee. So let's look at these verses, um, 16 to 20. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in these last verses in Matthew's Gospel, we see the main objective of the life of every disciple. Now, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And in this life, he has all authority. All authority in heaven and all authority on earth. And speaking out of that authority, he commissions the disciples to go all over the world. Go to all nations and make more disciples. And baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then as the disciples are being converted. They are to be taught everything that the disciples have been taught. Which will then lead to new disciples that are going out to make more disciples. Who will then be baptized. Who will then be taught. Who will then go out and make more disciples. You see how this is supposed to work? 
And the, the cycle should continue over and over again. This is the role of every Christian. Every one of us that calls on the name of the Lord is meant to be a disciple maker. All of us. The Great Commission isn't something that only applies to a few of us. Right? It's not just those that are called into vocational ministry. The Great Commission is for, the, for every single person that comes to faith. You are now a part of this cycle. It's also not something that you know, we put our time into, and then when we feel like we have done enough, then we tap out, you know, we smack hands with the next generation and we let them go with it from there on. That is nowhere in Scripture. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, it talks very specifically about how the older believers are supposed to disciple the younger believers and bring them up in the way that they're supposed to be. So we need everybody engaged in the Great Commission. If we are still alive, we have a role to play in the part of making disciples. And as we do this, we have a promise. Jesus says, I will be with you every step of the way. Every step of the way, I will be with you. And though Jesus isn't currently with us physically, we have been given the Holy Spirit that comes to live inside of us. He said it was better for him to go back to heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come, right? Because now he's body, Jesus is body. And the Holy Spirit can now come and live inside of us. And so we take that with us everywhere we go. And so now we have the power to accomplish the tasks that God puts in front of us. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And he shares that authority with us as we go. Right? When he was here in human form, he was tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what he was doing. And we can tap into that as well as long as our will lines up with the will of God. All of this is made possible because of Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus is still in the grave, none of this is possible. Because Jesus is alive, everything has changed. Jesus' resurrection changes how we live. It gives us a different purpose other than living just for ourselves. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, If the dead are not raised, and Jesus was the first fruits of the ones that were to be raised, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. All right? If there's no resurrection from the dead, if this is all we have to look forward to, if there's no life after this one, then we should live this one up. Right? Like, it's time to party. Everything we do should terminate on our pleasure, on our preferences, on our ease. If this is all we got, then it should be all about me. We should make sure that we spend all of our money on ourselves. We should make sure that we spend all of our free time on ourselves. The entire focus of all of our lives should be on us. But since there is a life after this one, 
with promises of great rewards for our obedience to the mission at hand, then we can sacrifice in this life so that we can inherit so much more, so much more than we can even comprehend in this life. We can give all of this mess up so that we can get so much more in that life. All because Jesus is alive. And on top of that, Jesus' resurrection changes how we die. For the believer in Christ, what is there to fear in death now that Jesus has conquered death? Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57, when this corruptible body is clothed in incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no more sting in Jesus. The resurrection of Christ took all the sting out of death. The resurrection shows us that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to God. And that means that when we put our faith in Jesus, that when we die, we will be with Jesus. And on top of that, Jesus' resurrection also guarantees that when Christ returns and restores all of creation back to the way things were meant to be before sin destroyed it all, that we will also be resurrected. He is the first fruits of many to come. Some, everyone's going to be resurrected. Some are resurrected to destruction, and others are resurrected to eternal life with Jesus forever. So Jesus' resurrection changes how we die. So what do we have to fear from death? Right? We don't have to fear what people will do to us if we share our faith. We don't have to fear persecution in this life. Because what is it? Paul says, you know, if I stay here, I've got work to do. But it's far better for me to die. Because then I get to go be with Jesus. Right? To live is Christ. To die is gain. Jesus' resurrection even changes the way we die. So where are you in all of this? My prayer is that you are here this morning, that you are saved by the grace of God, that when you think about the resurrection of Jesus, it resonates with you in such a way that you are set free, that you are filled with joy, because you know that that means nothing but power for you in this life, and nothing but increasing joy for all of eternity. But what that also means for you is that there is work to be done. You have been commissioned by God to get to work. And so put your hands to the plow. Don't look back and go. There are many around you that God has sovereignly placed around you that need to hear the message of the gospel. Maybe that you're here, though, today, and the idea of Jesus' resurrection doesn't fill you with joy. Maybe you don't have that relationship with Christ, and you're like the religious leaders. You're trying to explain it away, or you're trying to find ways for this not to apply to you in some way. Like You can't just 
do what the religious leaders did and try to cover your eyes and pretend that it didn't happen. Like another thing that Jesus' resurrection did was it confirmed it all. So if it won our salvation, it also confirmed your condemnation. Right? If it took the death of the Son of God to atone for our sin, that means that there is condemnation coming. And if you don't have the right relationship with God the Father through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then you will stand before him in your own righteousness, and you don't want to do that. So today is a good day to get right with God. To do that, you just you repent of your sin. You come before him and you say, God, I know that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I repent and I will follow you for the rest of my days. And if you, if anybody here needs to talk about that, come find me after the service. I will, I will gratefully walk you through that. All right? Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful for the cross. such a, a brutal way to atone for my sin but I'm grateful that Jesus was willing to endure it to win my salvation Lord I pray that everyone here would be secure in their faith and in their salvation and God if there's anyone here today that is not if anyone here today is far from you I pray that today would be the day of their salvation Lord, if anyone doubts the truth of their salvation, I pray that the cross and the resurrection would show them that you are indeed who you say you are. And that Matthew has made it a point over and over again to point to Jesus and say, this is truly the Messiah. This is everything that you need for salvation. And this is freely offered as a gift to any who will come and believe. resurrection and all that it means for the way that we live our life, all that it means for the way that we go into our death. Lord, I pray that it would bring hope to, to many here today. Lord, I love you. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.